you once wrote that you found political biography boring to read, or you used to. Why did you find it interesting to write? Well, I think, it, of course, making one's own inquiries makes you think about it more deeply, which is intrinsically interesting. But also the subject, Mrs. Thatcher, is particularly interesting because she was very unusual and because she was the first and effectively at the time only woman. And so everything's different. And so the impact of her is very strikingly different from that of even very well-known male politicians. And do you enjoy reading political biography more now that you've written your book? Well, I don't find that I do read it more particularly. I think probably the answer is yes, because um, I can understand more how the work is done and therefore I can see who's good at it and who isn't. And when they're evading a subject they don't understand or whether they've really got to the bottom of it and so on. How do you assess that? How do, what, what sort of things make you think that someone's really got a grip on what they're telling you? Well, partly it's their mastery of the sources, of course. Um, also, um, to some extent, it's a matter of perceiving their fairness. And I think it's quite an interesting subject because fairness doesn't mean... A, Um, necessarily um, that you're neutral about the person. You you can be highly sympathetic to the subject or you can be even unsympathetic to the subject and still be fair. Um, But fairness is something about considering the evidence and trying to give it its right weight. This, I think, is is easily detectable in um, biographies and some just don't do that. They wish to assassinate the character or they wish to make a hero of the character or or they're simply rather lazy. And I think you can sort of see um, if you've been walk down that path, you can um, detect what's going on. What parts of Margaret Thatcher's life did you find it most difficult to be fair about? Well, of course, I I wouldn't be the best judge of that, I suppose. Um, Are there any bits, though, where you sort of, you you had to work at at that sort of practice of fairness? Well, one way in which you need to be fair to a subject is simply to try to understand the subject. I I mean, I don't mean Mm. the biographical subject, I mean the issue. And there are certain subjects that I'm less good at and therefore have to work harder on, like, let's say, monetary policy or um, details about missiles, um, which is neither of which are my natural territory, and both of which are important in the case of Mrs. Thatcher. So I would have to make more efforts about that, you know, mental efforts to really understand what, what's going on than I would about, say, fighting an election um, or reform of the trade unions or something like that. Um, the other, there's a sort of broad point about being fair which is that biography naturally and inevitably and rightly must focus on the individual. And therefore, it may do that to the exclusion of other individuals or of a wider milieu, which is an inevitable danger, but is also a mistake because um, the individual in politics doesn't act alone, even a very remarkable character like Margaret Thatcher or Winston Churchill. And one needs somehow to convey the milieu and the weight of the other characters while never ceasing to focus on the uh, on the one character. Um, in her, um, one of the extraordinary features of Hilary Mantel's novels about Thomas Cromwell, that Wolf Hall, et cetera, is that I think it's right to say that he is in the room the entire time or in the field or whatever. I think, I think every single scene is seen, uh, um, I think Cromwell is part of, part of the, Thomas Cromwell is in every scene. I mean, sometimes it's sort of reported speech that he's hearing, but still. As a biographer, one sort of does that. You know, Mrs. Thatcher is almost always in the room, not absolutely always. But one mustn't, and that's right, that's fine, but one mustn't let her crowd everything else out. Was that, were the, were the Mantell books a sort of conscious model or influence for you, or is that something you've sort of noticed separately? Um, not not really, because I, t- I was reading them more towards the end of my, well, I read Wolf Hall um, quite a long time ago, and then I read the other two, uh, pretty much when I was finishing, but I, 
I think they're very good. Obviously, they're not biographies, um, but I think I I hope I learned something from them because the there's a sustained effort of the imagination which the novelist has to have to um, see through the eyes of, in, in her case, Thomas Cromwell. And though biography is fact, not fiction, imagination is required in biography as well. Um, and so in, in some ways, it's a similar task. On this question of the milieu that, that Margaret Thatcher was in, you paid a lot of attention in the three books to the biographies of all the people around her, especially in, in footnotes, but also in when you're describing events. Such as, yeah. such as the you know the leadership election in 1990. There's a lot of sort of <clears throat> biographical information. Is this kind of compil? Is this a sort of compilation of brief lives, a way of providing not just information but but commentary, almost like a sort of um, prosopographia of, of showing that? Because what it stood out to me was even just through the footnotes is that it really details the. Um, the way that she was very, very different to everyone else in that world, demographically yes. and socially. Yes, that's 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 right. So in putting footnoted, potted biographies of most of the characters, that's useful for reference, but it's also a sort of shorthand way of telling you about the media and the range of characters she was dealing with. And, of course, it brings out the fact that they're almost all male and a very high percentage of them went to public schools and. Oxford or Cambridge. She, of course, went to Oxford, but she didn't go to public school and, and she wasn't a man. <laughs> so I think when you your eye goes to the bottom of the page and picks up one of those biographies, it should be int- um, helpful in its own right, but it also should have a cumulative effect of placing Mrs. Thatcher among all these people. And, of course, rather like the woman, the only woman in the room is very noticeable, you know, physically, uh, she's very noticeable um, as unique in this milieu. Is that a technique that you sort of took from somewhere or is that something that that you sort of devised yourself? Well, I think she devised it to some extent and I picked up on that. So she she um, always had to wrestle with the point that it's it's considered it was it was considered a disadvantage to be a woman in the in the world in which she was moving. And she realized that though in certain respects it was objectively a disadvantage um, because of prejudice and so on, um, she could turn it to advantage. And I think one thing she understood very early on, because though she's a very sincere person, she's also a very good actress, is that she could see the almost filmic quality of, um, of her position. So she would know that the camera would turn come in on her and therefore she should exploit that to the full with her hair, her bag, her, her dresses, the sense of being different and noticeable, um, her voice. And um, and she put that to good use and tried to refine that and, well, simplify it really so that it could have maximum impact. I think that during the, the sort of at the time, there was a sort of high Tory ambivalence about Margaret Thatcher. So someone like T.E. Utley was, was, you know, a supporter, but not not a complete supporter, a slightly guarded sort of pro-Thatcher. Um, and I think you potentially fall into this group, you sort of slight disagree, you know, not entirely aligned with the with the Thatcher government on, you know, Ireland, Hong Kong, for example. Do you think, um, how did this position sort of <laughs> affect you as her biographer? I, I don't think my own specific views on political questions was, was so important in that, but I think perhaps my overall imp- approach 
affected it. So um, what I mean by that is that my background, I'm actually brought up as a liberal with a big L, um, liberal party, a family. And by sort of cultural inclination, I wouldn't be a natural Thatcherite. And I would always look at Mrs. Thatcher as somebody different from my way of thinking in that sense, which, of course, makes her very interesting. Um, you know, she, she, I'm not part of her tribe and, and wasn't by upbringing. And I hope that's useful because it gives a certain historical detachment. Um, however, um, I wasn't trying to write an interpretation of Mrs. Thatcher coming from my tribe. It wasn't sort of like the Whig interpretation of history sort of thing. <laughs> and indeed, in some ways, I might have been more, I was more impressed by her because I came from a, a different tribe. That's to say, I had a sort of, she had to overcome more barriers in my mind, perhaps, than somebody, suppose I'd been writing a biography of um, Asquith, let's say. Um, you know, that would have been more like the world I grew up in and um, perhaps less of a challenge. And um, writing about Mrs. Thatcher, it's sort of exciting to enter a world which, in social terms and political terms, and of course, a different sex as well, um, was less known to me. I think you wrote that she is, with the possible exception of Jim Callaghan, the most socially conservative prime minister that Britain has had. Did To what extent do your sort of, you know, your background and your personal views make it easy or difficult for you to be, you know, as you said earlier, fair in the way that you presented that? Well, she's a very odd mixture in that way. Um, I think I perhaps did write that. But um, of course, she also was such a change bringer. If you think of Mrs. Thatcher's sort of natural demeanour and reactions, um, she would be very socially conservative. I mean, not ultra socially conservative. I mean, for example, she married a divorcee, which was quite unusual in 1951. But, you know, a a fairly conventional Christian starting as a Methodist and sort of sliding gradually into Anglicanism as she rises in the up the social scale without ever abandoning Methodism, believing strongly in firm punishments for criminals, um, a very uncomplicated monarchist, um, no problem about hereditary peers in her mind, et cetera, et cetera. Very fond of sort of obvious traditional British things like, you know, um, the armed services, support of the police, all that sort of thing. Um, but in another way, um, and, and things like um, traditional high standards in school of, of sort of rigorous kind, so on and so on, all those things. Um, but in another way, she's so impatient to um, change things and unafraid of challenging whatever it is that people usually go around saying. So it's a curious combination and an interesting one. Um, for me, I don't remember that presenting a particular fairness issue. It just an, it's just this funny thing about her, which is also biographically very interesting, that she's very, very conservative and very, very radical. Do you think that your uh, religious, the fact that you are, a, you know, uh, have religious belief, do you think that had any sort of part in the consideration to pick you as the biographer, which I think you've said before, you don't really know why she chose you? Uh, no, I wouldn't have thought that it did have any um, consideration, except, I mean, Mrs. Thatcher's religion was quite vague, um, and she wasn't interested in at all in sort of ecclesiastical or theological questions. But what she, one of the things she respected in religion was um, some sort of seriousness about ultimate purpose, and she certainly had such a seriousness herself. And I remember talking to her about that, and she, I had just, this was before I was um, engaged in the work, but I think just in conversation, she had. I had recently become a, a Catholic, and she she talked about that. And she um, this is another interesting example of her sort of, in some ways, rather open mind because she's fundamentally brought up anti-Catholic, as most 
English Protestants were. And I don't think she would ever have considered becoming a Catholic. But I remember her being sort of rather pleased that I had become a Catholic because she thought this is a proper, serious Christian thing to do. And it was something she respected. She felt this about Jews too, obviously not weren't Christians. But again, she had a respect um, for Judaism and Judaic law and custom and manners and thought. Um, That was something which she recognised and liked in other people. Margaret Thatcher is is sometimes thought of or sort of, um, you know, dismissively described as unphilosophical. And you have, I think you said in your prefaces that she sort of would confound Socrates with her lack of, um, you know, reflection on, on her own life. But in some ways, she was quite an ideological person at certain times about, about freedom and, and things. Is, is the difference between being philosophical and ideological really so great? And was she, was she really living if not a sort of philosophically reflective life, a very philosophical life in, in, in what you've just been saying about seriousness and purpose. And, um, you know, is she sort of more philosophical than she looks? Yes, good, 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 good way to think about it, I think. Um, Alfred Sherman, who, with whom she fell out, but who was close to her in the 70s, um, said that she's not a person of ideas, but a person of beliefs, and beliefs, he said, are better than ideas. Um, I think he meant better from a political point of view for, for politics. Um, and I think that's sort of right. So the only there was a sense in which Mrs. Thatcher was philosophical, which was her, her mind was an inquiring one. And she was always thinking, 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 what's right here? What's the best? What's the problem? What's the solution? But she didn't have the philosopher's sceptical mind or pure intellectualism. Um, she wanted results and she wanted good things to happen and bad things to be stopped. And um, so she did have a, what you could call a philosophy, but she was not a philosopher. She was a, a person of action and beliefs. I heard an interview with you recently where you, you I'm, I'm going to sort of paraphrase, uh, but you said something like the, the, the sort of limitation of, of sort of, you know, left wing political thought is that it has a sort of utopian belief in politics, as in if, if everybody only could have the right politics, you know, everything yeah. would be OK. And you've written and talked about Margaret Thatcher trying to create a sort of Christian social order in Britain. And that, that's yeah. really the sort of the drive she had. Is, is she in that sense a bit more of a, you know, quotes, left wing political thinker with a, with a more utopian vision like that than we would typically think of her as being? Well, there is an element of that. There's a sort of because she's partly a preacher in politics. There's an element of um, some sense in her mind of building Jerusalem or rebuilding Jerusalem, I think, is there. And that's that tends to be more associated with socialism and, and, and indeed with certain forms of Protestant Christianity going, going back um, than with conservatism. So there is something of that. However, one of her beliefs, which was true, I mean, which, which she did adhere to, was that politics is not, doesn't contain the solutions of everything. Because people do not 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 political structures, um, and she did believe that. Though of course, she also because she was very egotistical, she did believe that something which she ran was bound to be good. <laughs> but um, so she could accommodate. People said she was very intolerant of other ideas. I mean, she was certainly very argumentative. But for example, um, she respected the Labour Party. She didn't respect the Liberal Party, but she respected the Labour Party because she thought that it represented something in Britain that ought to be represented and, and that conservatism 
didn't really represent, which was, the way she put it was that it was the party of the underdog. And she thought there should be a party of the underdog. And her own approach to the problem of people who are less successful and poorer and things like that was to open up their opportunities. But I think within that was um, also a sort of acknowledgement that not everybody can take those opportunities. And for those people, it's important that there be a party that represents their interests. And she thought that Labour was the party to do that. So that shows a certain sense that, you know, I, Margaret Thatcher, don't have the answer to everything. I'm trying to do a particular set of things, and I believe I can do this right. But life is bigger than that, and politics is bigger than that. On the question of her being, you know, argumentative, or, or however you want to phrase it, you have that uh, great memo, I think, from 1981, that someone in her office wrote to her, sort of, sort of. Oh, John Hoskins. Her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and saying, you know, everything that gets sort of quoted about her. Um, but actually, after that memo, she, you know, she was in power for another sort of nine years. And yeah. and should we should we be yes. quite cautious about this sort of um, you know this idea that she was you know single minded, not consensus minded, a, a you know a rude person, you know. Ha- should we sort of try and be revising that image of her and, and saying that actually that was a more narrow part of her leadership style than than is thought? Well, the famous Hoskins memo was very powerful and um, contained contained criticisms which were, were true. But um, it's also a sort of protest because he was feeling that she wasn't listening to him. And um, and also she had certain sort of completely maddening qualities if you were working with her every day, which you had to get off his chest. And one of them was that the less less sure she was about something and the more tired she was, the more rubbish, the more rubbish she talked. Um, and she could, in a tight corner, particularly before she'd made a decision, burble on a great deal and criticise others for, um, for a problem which really rested with her um, because she was sort of psyching herself up to do something. Um, and that happened a lot in certain economic decisions where she was worried about their unpopularity you know, might argue with Jeffrey Howe or later Nigel Lawson about putting up interest rates, which she was almost always against. They were quite often in favour of it and and so on. Um, and she used this tactically and psychologically, I think, without realising it. Um, and it could be a nightmare um, to live with. But leaders perhaps have to be a bit of a nightmare to live with uh, some of the time. The other thing was that because she was so jealous of her position and felt felt so fragile in her position as the as the only woman and the leader that she sort of knew people would like to get rid of she um had to uh, she thought at least that the way to deal with this is to be extremely forceful and not to be seen to give in a more an upper class man would tend to think that the graceful and sensible thing to do would be to give in and say as a tactical thing and say i'm frightfully sorry you're completely right i've got this completely wrong and she never felt she could do that she felt she had to maintain her, in argument, her position at almost all times. But it didn't mean that actually she paid no attention to the criticisms and or that she never altered her views because she would always she would always claim consistency, which might not, in fact, always be there. And that was, again, a sort of technique of hers. And so she was more consensual and more pragmatic than she would admit. Her colleagues often find that hard to understand because she didn't want them to understand it. She wanted them to think that she was, you know, iron and um, Im- Im- immutable and unchangeable and, um, um, as she would put it, staunch. Um, actually, there was a lot more subtlety and a sort of listening than she or they would acknowledge. For example, 
trade union reform, she was always complaining about Jim Pryor um, going so slowly, but actually she did herself want to go slowly. She she had a great impatience, which made her want to get reforms in and bring about the changes. But she also knew that she mustn't make the mistake of Ted Heath of sort of doing one great big law all at once. She must take, do it bit by bit. And so she was much more pragmatic in what she did when about trade union reform than uh, than she would say she was being. You found some new material about Thatcher, particularly from when she was a young woman, to do with boyfriends and, and letters to her sister and things that sort of um, inevitably gave a much broader view of her character than we were used to from, you know, the, the television and, and the news and so forth. Yeah. Did that change or how did that change your view of the way she operated politically? It confirmed something which I'd sort of sensed, but it brought it out much more clearly, which, again, is what a cunning person she was. I don't mean that in a nasty way, but her self-description was of somebody who just knew what's right and does it. But it wasn't like that. She did have a strong moral sense and she did have strong convictions, but she also had very strong ambitions and a sense of when to do something and when not to do something. And um, so if you look at Margaret Margaret Roberts, as she then was wondering um, whom to marry, it's the female equivalent of what 19th century novels used to call the choice of life for a man, um, which is often depicted in 19th and 18th century novels. You know, a young man, he goes out in the world, what does he want to do? Does he want to be a soldier or a lawyer or a, whatever it might be? Um, and who and how is he going to shape his life? And what? And she was thinking a lot about that. And so she wanted, in the case of marriage, she... She definitely wanted true love. She's a romantic person, but she also um, wanted security, financial security, and a sense of a man she could look up to, almost certainly older, or very unlikely that anyone she married will be her own age, I think it would be fair to say. And her most serious boyfriend was twice her age, and then Dennis was 11-plus uh, years older than she. And... Um, you can see her, particularly in, in the year 1951, when she has three serious boyfriends, one of whom is Dennis, weighing up. One's a farmer. Does she want to be married to a farmer? No. Um, uh, one is a distinguished um, doctor. Yes, but he is a lot older than her. Um, and then there's Dennis, who had had a good war and had his own business, um, but on the other hand was divorced. And so on. So she's thinking, wouldn't perhaps put it to herself like this, do I... How am I going to be an MP? Maybe even how am I going to be a minister? Maybe, maybe even how am I going to be prime minister, though I'd be much less sure about that. This is all very early on. But also, how am I going to marry the right man and have children? And these things are all going round and round in her head and influencing her decisions. And how am I going to be able to support myself or, or be supported by a man? How, will I have enough money? Because um, she had no money from her family. So you can see this. A very ardent person, but also a person who thinks very carefully before she does something. She loves the expression, the well-known expression, time spent in reconnaissance is never wasted. And I think she was always um, making reconnaissance. The political scientist Mark Garnett has described Thatcher as banal. And this is a, this is a quote from him. He says, she was prepared to face down establishment institutions if they opposed her. This defiance was not the product of a deeply laid plan. Only interesting people engage in that style of thinking. 
Is that a helpful way to think about Margaret Thatcher? No, I think it's an unhelpful way to think about it because what he's not acknowledging is that she's a politician. So the point about being a politician is not, do you have a brilliantly original mind, but what are you capable of doing? And um, uh, she's extremely unusual in politicians for a sustained interest, sustained over a very, very long period in her case in office, in the content of what she was doing. And therefore, um, she was thinking really hard about some questions like, how do we end the Cold War? How do we beat trade union leaders? How do we beat inflation? With a resourceful seriousness, which might not be intellectually original, but which um, was, in a political sense, profound. And to call it banal is um, is mistaken, because um, actually nobody else was like that. It's not what... Um, there was simply nobody else in the first rank who was behaving and thinking that way. So it was original. It wasn't original in the sense that Plato's original, but in politics, it was original. Uh, Tyler Cowan has talked about um, the advantage of, of having or displaying what he calls autistic cognitive traits. So the ability to, the ability in the sort of absorbing interest to absorb a lot of information, to, to categorize it, to order it. Um, and to do this, you know, much more so than other people, um, along obviously with some other things. Do you think Margaret Thatcher displays those sorts of traits? And and did they, as, as I think you're sort of suggesting here, give her a political advantage um, uh, and, and an advantage as prime minister? I, I wouldn't use the word autistic. Um, and I know something about autistic behaviour through my own family, um, my own wider family. And, and I think it's probably not the right sort of categorization, but I think Miss Thatcher had astonishing powers of application and she did have the ability to, um, in order to apply herself to a subject, to shut out other ones while she was making, while she was applying herself. However, um, she was a sort of vulnerable human being as well. And though she wasn't the best person at reading other people's emotions, she was in many ways, sympathetic to people. I mean, she could be very unpleasant to people, but she was really fond of some people and um, grateful to them and solicitous in their difficulties and um, conscientious in how she ought to behave to them. So she was odd in the way that all great people are odd. Um, I mean, sorry, I don't mean all great people are odd in the same way, but all great people are odd in, are odd in some way. But I, I, but, um, I don't... I don't think her mentality was quite as 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 you described there. And I think she couldn't have survived in politics if it were, because one of the things you have to do in politics is you have to have intuition about what other people are thinking. Um, she constantly attended to what she thought voters were thinking, um, you know, what was the public reaction to something or other. Um, she wasn't obsessed with the media to anything like the degree that politicians are now, but she was very... She knew how to sniff the wind. And though she could be very brutal with colleagues, I think she she did actually have powers of diplomacy, which were um, put to very good use on the world stage, if you think of her relation with Reagan or with Gorbachev, for example. How much of what we call Thatcherism was actually uh, sort of Lawsonism? Perhaps, perhaps they started out more or less together and, and, and diverged. Um, but I think that, and there was a lot in common, um, and before things went wrong, there was a sort of strong alliance about about that. But I think Lawsonism is 
if you if you could, you know, and I wouldn't call it an ism actually, but I think Lawson's views about things were, were more were generally more well, they were more economically based, as you might expect. He was more was less politics and more economics in it, and he was um, more thoroughly um, liberal in economics than she. Whereas she tended to see economics as the instrument. I mean, she was she did believe in free market e- economics, but she saw them more as the instrument of something wider. Whereas he was more interested in them in themselves. I think. Um, then there's a second point, of course, which is that, which takes us onto rather different territory. That he, I think Lawson, like Thatcher, because again a big ego, suffered from feeling that if he was doing something himself, um, it was bound to be good. I think all the all important politicians tend to <laughs> fall into this category <laughs> and um and um he so it, it was sort of self-evident to him that if he was chancellor of the exchequer it must be better than anybody else being chancellor of the exchequer and this led him after several successes to a great mistake which was um the whole ERM um the attempt to get into the ERM and the and the shadowing of the Deutsche Mark in relation to that it became a sort of totem about how you could manage sterling and it became a piece of sort of alchemy or magic or sort of a sort of hieratic um thing which only people of great brilliance could um could operate and she i think had a a wider view a more common sense view about economic questions and how they weren't really like that they didn't really depend on such calculations but on things that are in a certain sense simpler um, Lawson was much the superior economic brain to hers, but I think he was more defective politically um, and didn't understand. I don't think, you know, I think there's a reason why he couldn't ever have been Conservative Party leader, um, though he was a very distinguished Chancellor of the Exchequer. Who are the most underrated cabinet ministers from Margaret Thatcher's government? Well, things went wrong for Geoffrey Howe, so it's probably, it's perhaps forgotten that he was a very good um, Chancellor of the Exchequer. In some ways, he's a very good foreign secretary, but he he was perhaps too indecisive and too sort of official-minded. But Howe was also very important in Thatcherism, though he didn't really like Mrs. Thatcher much. So Richard Ryder described him as the tapestry master of Thatcherism. It's a very good phrase. And Howe actually preceded her in his interest in free market economics in this, in the, even in the 50s, 60s and 70s. I mean, she was interested, but he got there first very often. I think he was very important to her. And of course, it was in the early days and 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 of course it was pretty disastrous when um when they finally fell out um and he was definitely a really high class servant of the state um i think um nicholas ridley was so bad in public presentation and sort of politics in in that general sense that people didn't realize what a competent minister he was and what a good brain he had um I think he was in temperamentally very unsuited to modern politics in some ways, but of all the ministers in her government, I always found he was the one most respected by officials, interestingly. He was decisive. He would take responsibility. He wouldn't duck problems. He would think through things. He was a bit wild on the political aspects, but he more impressive, more impressive than people realised. And then uh, Norman Tebbit is an interesting one because, of course, he suffered great difficulties because of the terrible injuries he suffered. He and his wife suffered in the Brighton bomb. But I think, so he may not have been such a good minister of a big department but he he did have the most formidable brain and the most tremendous capacity to express something very clearly and often amusingly and so he sort of cut through but both both the people who agreed with him and people who disagreed with him he it was a very um striking phenomenon norman tevitt and unusual and highly unusual in a you know 
who somebody who in formal terms was at middle to higher ranking rather than top ranking cabinet minister in terms of jobs um you know everybody knew who he was and uh, you had to watch out for him his fierceness in debate his sort of rather spare eloquence his um toughness all that was um formidable now we live at a time when so many of the sort of essential moments in in Thatcher's political career um can be watched on youtube um and we, we can hear radio clips and we can see her letters online and it's possible to imagine a sort of um almost like a, a biographical museum of margaret thatcher where you can be sort of immersed in her um yeah. and in and in the world what what sort of challenge does that present to a biographer who inevitably you know, there's a sort of inevitable limitation in that you know disraeli only exists on paper but margaret thatcher exists in all these mediums but you as a biographer only have paper <laughs> Uh, yes. Well, of course, I didn't only have paper in the sense that I could, I mean, I only have paper on which to express it, but I could myself watch the clips. And mm. indeed, I saw them live uh, frequently because I was around at the time. Um, I think um, I think it's very, very interesting and instructive to watch clips of Mrs. Thatcher. And I'm always urging people, instead of sort of theorising about her to, on, in television programmes, to um, to show those clips, because she had a tremendous gift of communication even though sometimes the communication um, didn't please the recipient. She's very, very clear. And um, in that sense, extremely good at getting a message across. And that survives very well in the clip. So you can see her intent often much more clearly and strikingly than that of modern politicians and the sheer sort of emotional force she put into everything. Uh, if, for example, you watch the when she's answering questions on the day she resigned in November in, uh, 1990, answering questions in the House and then doing the no confidence debate. It's absolutely astonishing, particularly in the questions, when you, if you keep bearing in mind that she has just resigned. So she's still Prime Minister, but she's given, she's tendered her resignation that day. And there she is, you know, not a hair out of place, incredibly um, tough argument, really rather witty. And as she's, as she said at one point in the debate, I'm enjoying this. And sort of playing it all for all it's worth and engaging with people from the other side. There's a there's a sort of almost banter she has about the um the nature of uh, the gap between the rich and the poor, and uh, where she um I think it's with Jim Sillers, the Scottish Labour MP, and a bit of a ding-dong with Simon Hughes, the Liberal MP. And it's very good theatre and it brings home a lot of her. So I think I think those clips um are vivid, and thank goodness for television um, interviews and news clips, because the House of Commons was not televised until 1989, so she'd been Prime Minister. It was on the radio all through her Prime Ministership, but not on the television, so we haven't got most of that um, uh, on television. But we can see other things like Brown Walden interviews or, or news clips and so on. And they are really, really worth studying. And you're right that obviously I can't convey that fully in a book. I can describe it and I can quote from it, but um, I hope that what would happen is that when people read the book, they can get more out of the clips. And when they look at the clips, they can get more out of the book. One or two general questions to close with. Um, who should write Tony Blair's biography? <laughs> um, I don't know who should write Tony Blair's biography but at all, But and I certainly am not volunteering myself. But I, um, I think, again, the question of fairness is important because Blair suffered from a thing which he was he received absurd adulation and then absurd um vilification 
And actually, the judgment on him, the historical judgment on him, it should be much more nuanced and requires some detachment. And you know, speaking only for myself, I think I, I must have written as a journalist thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of words criticizing Mr. Blair and his policies. But I think he deserves to be taken seriously as a political leader and was important and that his fundamental message about new labor was actually true. He's often described as a liar, but I think his fundamental message about what he was and what he was trying to do was true and people um, appreciated it. And he, it's also true, unfortunately, that a lot of his actions were rather ill thought out and didn't come to much. So that, that's a slightly tragic element in his time. But I, he deserves much more serious attention than, than the great majority of British prime ministers. What are the most underrated political biographies? Hmm. I think um, think quite a lot that are overrated, um, (laughs) but it would be invidious to say which. If you want to, um, what I most value, but this is probably somebody who's in the trade talking rather than the general reader, is what I'm looking for. I want to feel very confident that the author is fair-minded and it also has a sort of feel for what it is he's writing about so that he's not somehow off the point or um, out of his depth or, as it were, wasn't there. I don't mean that a biographer has to have been present when these things happen, but, I mean, doesn't have a feel for how, let's say, the House of Commons really works or something like that. I like, I like in that sense, the bi- biographers that are a professional. I mean, I think that man, um, D.R. Thorpe, is good, for example. Mm. I'm afraid I don't have a, a biography of a modern politician to, and by modern, I'm going back quite a long way, to hold up and say, this is it, this is this is how it should be done. But this may well be my fault. There's, there's, I've read by no means all of them. Charles Moore, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.